of it's gone. Amen. Titus chapter 2, starting to read at verse 11, says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, grace is teaching us, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord spoke to us through the gifts of the Spirit this morning about His return. And we are in the midst of a series called Lessons from Grace. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your people, Lord, and for the anointing of Your presence that is here. We just ask You, Lord, that as we open Your Word together, that You would challenge us, add Your understanding. Lord, help us, Lord God, in whatever way You know we need, Lord, that we would be there on that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this is our third lesson from this text in Titus, considering that grace not only makes salvation possible, but it teaches us to live in a fashion that glorifies Jesus and is a part, the way we live is a part of our looking for that blessed hope, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. That should be the most important event, I was going to say on our calendar, but we can't actually put it on the calendar because we don't know when it is. But it is the most important thing that we are looking forward to. It's not Christmas Day. It's not the pastor's birthday the week before Christmas. But it is the return of Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing. If you miss everything else, don't miss that. Don't miss the return of our Lord and Savior. Amen. And last week, last lesson, we spent some time taking a fresh look and possibly a a sobering look at what it means to overcome our flesh and at the roles that prayer and the Word of God play in living for God. And as a part of our relationship with Jesus, both prayer and living and and the Word of God, sorry, are vital for the ongoing transformation of our lives cannot be understated. Amen. The importance of prayer and the Word of God in our lives is very important. I want to say this if I can. Sometimes when we teach we cover a lot of territory and we're not all able to retain it. I know that my brain fills up very quickly. Don't be afraid to listen to a message again. We have a podcast. You can listen to that for free if you know how to do that. There are CDs. They're a few dollars each, but the podcast is free. If you're a note taker, that's okay. I can't take notes when I'm listening to preaching because I miss what's being said while I'm writing down my notes. Some people are fantastic note takers, but take the Word of God home. Look to apply it into your life. Amen. Bless the Lord. But this morning I want to spend some time on another subject that is familiar to us, but again, I'm hoping to challenge our thinking and maybe add to our understanding just a little bit. And that's the subject of being a part of the family of God. Being a part of the family of God. The church is only referred to as being a family directly on one occasion in the New Testament. We find that in Ephesians 3 where the Lord talks about, well, the Apostle Paul writing says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. There are, however, quite a number of references in the Scripture to believers being brothers and sisters, to God being our Father. And even Galatians, it speaks, it uses an expression, Jerusalem, which is above, talking figuratively about the church, being the mother of us all. 
So the idea of the church being a family of sorts is consistent throughout the scripture. Now in the natural world, there are three ways that you can become a part of a family. There's blood, you're born into a family. There's adoption, where you're legally adopted into a family. And then there's marriage. We marry into each other's families. When you get married, you may only have one spouse, but all of a sudden you've got a whole lot more family members that came as a part of the package deal. And uh, the scripture covers all of these three as well when we think about being a part of his family. We're washed in his blood, we're adopted by his spirit, and we become a part of the bride of Christ. And so these natural examples are all fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Amen. Now, when we first become a part of the family of God, and if you'll stop for a moment with me and remember back to when they, whether it was just this year or two years ago or a long time ago, when you first became a part of the family of God, it is common, if not normal, for people to fall in love with their new family. Anybody remember what it was like when you first became a part of the family of God? And I am always blessed when I hear people say how much they love the family of God here because I think that's important. And it's very common. You, you're born again. You think that your new brothers and sisters in Christ are wonderful, and you love to be a part of that church and a part of that family. Tragically, the most common reason that people leave the family is for the same people. The same people that we fall in love with when we come in can often be the reason we use to excuse us when we go out. Because something happens something said or done, something's not said or not done within the same family that we originally fell in love with and we go out of the church. Now, there are other reasons why people leave churches or leave the family of God, but from my years in the church and my observation, the most common above all else is some sort of hurt or offense from somebody else or somebody's else within the church. And so that which we fell in love with becomes that which we can no longer stand to be around. And the big question in all of that is what actually changed in that time frame. But what is really the purpose of the family of God? What is it for? There's a lot of different ideas about what church is for. Even in our society, the reasons that people choose a church to go to. Often there are certain things that they're looking for in a church. And I think there are things we should look for in a church. But a lot of people, their reasons are a little bit superficial, if I can say that without being offensive. They, they might like the programs they have. They might think uh, their praise and worship team is, is really awesome. They, they might like the, the youth program because they've got teenagers. They, they might think the pastor's a really nice guy. They, it, it, there's a lot of different reasons. And we understand all of that. And I say, let them come through the door for whatever reason they like. But there are deeper reasons that will keep you in a church. Often coming to an understanding of biblical truth can be sort of the last in the, in the process of, of making a church your home. But the reality is it should be the first box that we tick. The first box that we should look to tick when we are seeking a place to call our home spiritually is what are they preaching? Is the truth of God's word there? Even if the music's lousy and they have no programs and the pastor's not a very nice person, the truth of God's word is the number one parameter when we choose a family of God. 
And the thing is, when we make the choices for the right reasons, there's a much better chance of us sticking it out. Because when we make choices for those other reasons, when those reasons no longer please us, we'll go as easily as we came. I was having a conversation with a couple some time ago who were in a particular congregation, and I knew enough about the history of that place to know that it hadn't all been a bed of roses. There'd been challenges, there'd been a, a lot of situations that had taken place that were very, very difficult. And I spoke to them and I said, and I may have shared this before, I know I have at a one-on-one -on -one level, I can't remember if I have from the pulpit or not, but I spoke to them and I, I said to them, well, you know, I sort of said, I made a, a semi-humorous comment that you guys deserve a medal for sticking it out through all those, those difficult years. And they said something to me that has stuck with me and come back to me many times. They said, God told us that that was our church. And so whatever happened wasn't in the decision because the Lord said, this is where I want you. And so that was the decision that determined whether they stuck it through all that stuff that wasn't really good. And I think that there is something in that, that if we say, why am I here? and have those reasons that are more foundational than structural, we're more likely to stick it out when everything is not as sweet as we'd like it to be. But what really is the purpose of the family of God? Some people think it's to meet all their needs. And there is an aspect of that, but the church is not really here to meet people's needs. The church really exists to help people get to heaven. And meeting needs can be a part of that along the way, but... The priority is we want to be saved. We want to be with Jesus when he comes back. Amen. And so there are some things that we, we look for and we appreciate about the church and being a part of the family. And the first one I've got on my list is encouragement. We come together. We worship together. We encourage one another. We pray for one another. It's very, very important. Being a part of the family of God also is important in, our, in becoming stronger in gaining strength. We get together. There is preaching and teaching that is directed from the Lord for us as a body that helps to give us strength, that guides us in our lives, that helps us and ministers to certain situations and things that are going on. There's the opportunity to serve together, to become involved in the kingdom both at a local level and beyond. And you might say, well, I've never done anything beyond. If you give to missions, you're doing something beyond. You might not be able to go, but you can give. And so we are involved in the kingdom locally and beyond. And we talk about the importance of the family of God for these reasons. And so we should. They are crucial to spiritual well-being. They are vital. And I am a very strong believer. Some might think too strong, but I would suggest it's not. That if you are not a part of a body of believers, of a family of God the chances of you leading a strong spiritual life and being ready for the Lord's return are slim at best. I didn't say they're impossible. I know there are situations and everybody can say, but I know this person or but what about. There are always those situations, but as a general principle, my chances of making it to heaven are much greater when I'm with you than if I'm on my own. That's the way that God has ordained it. And his track record is that he usually gets things right. Amen. And so these reasons, encouragement, strength, and serving together, are very important parts of being in the family of God, but there are more layers to it than that. 
more layers to it than that. And one of those is growth. Spiritual growth, possibly in its first example, from the example of other people. Titus chapter 2, the verses that led up to our opening text, speak to us about older men and women being examples to the younger. And that's important. That's another reason why we come together. Your example matters. Your example in the family of God matters. And sometimes it's not always a simple question of, is it right or wrong? But rather, what is the message that my choices are sending? Sometimes not everything is sin and not sin. Sometimes there's wisdom which says, I have a responsibility to anybody who may look to me as an example. And the longer you serve the Lord, the more that people will look to you because you've been around a while. And that example is very, very important. Amen. And secondly, there's another area of growth, and that's growing to be like Christ through situations and circumstances that are less than ideal. Difficult situations. There is a significant amount of instruction in the Scripture as to what our responses are and reactions should be towards others, and especially towards those that are in this family. Let's look at the Word of God. Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 and 9. And if you've got a roast in the oven, I've got more notes than last week. Romans chapter 12 and verse 9 says, Let love be without dissimulation, or not, it needs to be genuine. Abhor or detest that which is evil, cleave or hang on to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. I could spend the rest of my life trying to get those three words right. Continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. That means allow the Lord to take care of things. It doesn't mean, you know, make an opportunity to demonstrate wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And a little further along to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 1. says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring 
to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is an interesting idea because unity cannot be achieved without having a group environment. But unity happens at an individual level. It's supposed to happen in a body, but it happens when individuals make decisions. It doesn't just happen in a group where they somehow are just all remote controlled. As individuals, we make decisions to be united together. Amen. It's important we understand that. And one more passage a little further on in the same chapter, Ephesians 4 and 29. It says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Now that's just a selection of a few passages. There's more that we could look at this morning. But the point is there's a lot of teaching and instruction in the Scripture about our responses and reactions towards other people. Amen. And the mistake or perhaps misunderstanding that we get sometimes as believers is in thinking that these actions or attitudes are required of us for the benefit of others. Think about that for a moment. And it is definitely true that I prefer to be on the end of pleasantness, of kindness, of tender-heartedness, and long-suffering. My wife's given me 23 years of putting up with me, and she's long-suffering. And that's not been, that's just how it is. I know I'm not the easiest human being to live with. And most of the time she is very long suffering toward me. And I like to receive that. We all like to receive the nice things. Amen. But the reality of all of these things that the Lord instructs us to practice and endeavor to practice and work towards is that the benefit is actually for us. Because when I extend those things, offer those things, demonstrate those things, I get to become more like Christ. And I get to see more of Him revealed in me. So while it benefits others, our balance of understanding sometimes is not accurate. And we think that it's for the good of somebody else, which it is. The Bible talks about how a soft answer turns away wrath. It is definitely for the benefit of others, but the primary reason that this instruction is here is that we might be more like Christ. That's what it's about. It's about His nature being revealed through us. Amen. Before we were saved, before we were born again of water and spirit, our sinful actions and our lifestyles basically fell into two categories. First one is sin against God. Different forms of idolatry, exalting things above the Lord, not acknowledging God, breaking the law of God. The second group is sin against others. Lying, stealing, violence, immorality, whatever it may be, something that is in, involved in human interaction. Amen. But then in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, it says that we are a chosen generation, and some of you can quote this, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
which in times past were not a people, but now are a people. We are the people of God. So before we were in darkness, in sin, but he has called us out of that darkness and into his light. And we were not a people before, but we are now the people of God, or we are the family of God. And what is interesting is, as a part of this family, the first two commandments that we are expected to strive to keep are the opposite of the old lifestyle. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. So instead of sinning against God, we are giving him everything we have. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So instead of sinning against others, I'm required to love my neighbor as myself. There is a complete reversal, which is why the example of darkness and light is given to us. They are opposites, if you like. One is dark and one is light. Amen. And in fact, everything that we are instructed to do in all of Scripture is covered by those two commandments. That's what the Bible tells us. It doesn't mean that we memorize these two verses in Mark chapter 12, throw away the rest of our Bibles. That's not what it means. But it means that everything that God wants us to be, everything He wants us to do is covered under Him being first and loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's covered by those two. We are called out of darkness and into light. And I got to thinking a bit, a little bit about that during the week and shared some thoughts the other day when I was talking with Brother Frost. But in the very beginning, in Genesis 1, the Bible says basically there was just darkness. But then God said, let there be light. And in the first chapter of Genesis, the sun and the moon didn't come in until a little bit later. And so there was light before there was a sun. And that's because there was, I believe, and I conferred with Brother Frost and we we're on the same page so if you disagree you've got to take us both on no I'm just kidding that that light was an expression of God himself that that nothingness was there and God said I'm here and he expressed himself in light it's difficult for us to comprehend all of that but God said let there be light and then when you jump ahead to the New Testament John chapter 1 let's turn there together let's read some scriptures Okay, John chapter 1 and verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There's a reference here back to the beginning, but also to what happened when Jesus came. Amen. Verse 6 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, you've got a King James, you'll see that light is capitalized there, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, talking about John the Baptist. He wasn't the light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now, light by definition, according to our good friends of the Oxford Dictionary, is the agent that stimulates sight and makes things visible. It illuminates and it brings clarity. So light reveals things to us 
that are already there, but we previously couldn't see. Amen. When you turn your lights off in your house at night when you go to bed, your furniture doesn't disappear just because you can't see it. It's still there. If you've ever had to find your way through a hotel room or someone else's house in the middle of the night, you'll often find all of their furniture is just staggering around in the dark. Possibly their kid's Lego on the floor as well. Fastest way to find lost pieces of Lego is to walk around the house with no shoes on. So they say. But when we walk around in the dark and we bump into something, it's because we cannot see it. And so when something is illuminated, we can suddenly see something that was there that we couldn't see before. And that's why the Bible says that we were in darkness. We were called out of that darkness, but while we were in darkness, we could not see. Because that's where the devil wants to keep people. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says that the God of this world, or Satan, has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the, the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The devil does not want people to have the light of God shine in their lives because there are things that are there that right now they can't see. But when the gospel comes... And illumination comes and the light shines. The light of the glory of, glorious gospel of Christ reveals things. And the first time you came into that light, the first thing it revealed to us was that we were in sin. When we were in darkness, we didn't really know about darkness. But when you come into light, it reveals sin. But thank God it doesn't stop there because the same light that reveals sin reveals the escape from sin. The same light that says you are in sin says, I am your hope. I am your escape. I am the way that you can be saved. But while we're in darkness, we're in ignorance. And we don't know. Amen. But like the light in Genesis chapter 1, the light is a who, not a what. It is the Lord expressing himself. Because when you read on in the same chapter of 2 Corinthians, it says, for God. So before that it said the devil wants to keep them blind so they stay in darkness. But verse 6 says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When God was manifest in the flesh, light came to the earth. Now, he looked like a man just like every other man. That's what the Bible says. But the gospel that he brought, the words that he said, the things that he did, turned the lights on for humanity. Amen. That's why when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, the day the church was born, and he preached the gospel message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the light came on. And the people said, what shall we do? But thank goodness that in the light was also the cure for their sin. That's when Peter said, you need to repent. You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Amen. Bless the Lord. What an awesome God we serve. The 104th Psalm says that he is the one that covers himself with light like a garment. We sing that song, he wraps himself in light. How great is our God. What an awesome God. And then in 1 John chapter 1, let's turn across there and try and keep you with me. It's the great thing about preaching from an iPad. I only see one page at a time. I have no idea how many more are left. 
Bless the Lord. But First John chapter 1 and verse 5 says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Isn't it interesting that truth is something you do? It's not just something you know. We do not the truth. And verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. So if we are to walk in the light as he is in the light, how is Jesus in the light? The, the wording perhaps confuses us a little bit because it's not that he is in the light, but it is who he is. He is the source of light. And when we endeavor or strive towards being like him and pleasing him and honoring him in our lives, we become full of his light more and more. Amen. The Bible talks, I believe it's in Matthew, about if your eye is single, then you're full of light. In other words, when you have a single focus on honoring God and obeying God and glorifying God, there's more of His light that shines into your life. Now, this is all very interesting about the light and called out of darkness, but what does it have to do with us being a part of the family? Because I don't want to get in trouble for being off topic. For the same epistle, 1 John, the next chapter. Chapter 2 and verse 8 says, Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. And he that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. So we're called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We understand that, and we think of that sometimes in, a, in the single dimension of out of sin into righteousness, and that's true. But there's another dimension to this here, and it has to do with the second commandment and being a part of the family. If I say that I'm in the light, but I hate my brother, I'm actually in darkness. And I'm deceiving myself. Amen. In fact, the brightness, if I can use that, I know nowadays they talk about so many lumens and so many watts and all these different measurements of brightness. But the brightness of our light is directly connected to our relationship with our brethren and with the family. How much of him shines in me and through me is directly connected to my relationship with you as my brothers and sisters. That's a little sobering, or at least for me anyhow. Amen. John chapter 13, you don't need to turn there, says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. Walking in love with their brethren in the love of God means more light. That same light shines through us that others would see it. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love, or in other words, if the light's on strong, if the light shines strongly. Jesus said that we love one another as he loved us. How did he love us? Sometimes you read the verse, you think, well, what does that mean? How, how did Jesus love us? 
Romans 5 and 8 says that God commendeth his love toward us while we were yet sinners and died for us. So his love was demonstrated in his actions without consideration of response. The same passage we read in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19 says, we love him. Then there's a comma and it says, because he first loved us. That means that his love came to me before I gave anything to him. And so the obvious parallel is that my love for my brothers and sisters is extent, if it's going to be as he loved us, it's extended regardless of how we think they deserve or don't deserve it. Because I want to make a very bold statement this morning. If his love toward me was extended based upon my merit, I would have never known the love of God. But while we were yet sinners, he commended his love toward us. While we blasphemed his name, broke his law, committed all manner of sins against him and against other people, he said, I love you. If you love one another as I have loved you. Amen. The love of God towards us, and let me be honest as I can be, I don't preach this from a place of having arrived. You know, that when you prepare a message like this, you almost feel a little bit like a hypocrite to stand up and preach it. Because you read and you think, Lord, man, how do you preach a message like this? Well, this is us. This is not me and you. This is us. This is the family. However dysfunctional that family may be. Amen. But the love of God towards us is generated by His identity, not our performance. That's what we have to remember. His love for me is not predicated upon my love for Him, but upon who He is. And I'm so grateful that it's not based upon my abilities or my performance or failures. And when God is dealing with me about my life and who I am in Him, He is actually not overly concerned with what others may or may not have done to me. It's not that He doesn't care, but God's first priority is not what's happened to you, but what you're doing with it. Because he deals with us on an individual basis. Come here, Moses. Moses was dressed up last night at the youth end of year like his Old Testament namesake. Fancy robes and a couple of big fake stone tablets. And uh, when he put the stone tablets down, he looked a bit like a Catholic priest when he was done. But Now, this man is my brother. It's obvious we're related. It's very easy to see that. But if he offends me, if he hurts me or does something that lets me down, whatever, fill in the blank, God's primary concern about me is my action. Now, God will deal with him about his, but it's not my job to fix that. It's my job to keep this. And then the Lord will work on that, and hopefully through that process, we can actually become closer together. That's one of the thanks, bro. That's one of the ways that God takes things that are negative. He doesn't endorse them. He doesn't force them to happen. But when they happen, He, because of how awesome He is, He can take them and actually bring a good ending to a bad beginning. That's one of the awesome things about the Lord. Amen. 
But you see, when I withhold a righteous response from my brother, I make it about them instead of about me. And for me, it's always got to be about me. It's always got to be about what am I doing? Who am I? How does God want me to be? How does God want me to respond, want me to react, want me to behave? Because our natural tendency is, but, but they, but he, but she, shouldn't have, shouldn't this, shouldn't that. The Lord, the Lord will deal with the, the, those things secondarily, but in the immediate situation, his concern is, what will I do? What will I do? My love for my brethren, and I use that word, it's gender neutral. My love for my brethren cannot be based upon their love for me or their actions, but upon who he is and upon my desire to be like him and to walk in his light. Love one another as I have loved you. And whenever we have a problem with a brother or a sister, step back and ask that question, how has he loved me? It'll give you a really good perspective and possibly a large slice of humble pie to go with it. Amen. Which we all need to eat from time to time. Amen. You see, some people become a part of a church or a family and they love to worship together and encourage one another, like we talked about. But when offense comes or something happens the wrong way, they withdraw or leave the family. What they fail to understand and this is really some of the things the Lord's helped me as I was praying and studying this subject, is that that is actually a part of the purpose of his family. That's actually, what do you mean, Pastor? That the, it's the purpose of the family of God to hurt me? No, not exactly. Does offense matter? Yes, it does matter. Should we do our very best not to offend? Absolutely. That's why all that instruction is there. Long-suffering gentleness, all that stuff that we love to have but have a hard time giving? Should we always try to make it right when we have offended? Yes, absolutely we should. And generally, the sooner the better. But an offense from a brother or a sister with what I'm going to do with it is an opportunity to either shine his light a little brighter or to fade a little bit more into the shadow. My response determines my brightness. It's a little bit like a dimmer switch. You know, you see those light switches where you can turn them around and make the lights get brighter and stronger? My reaction controls the brightness. And this is all very easy to preach, but it's not so easy to live. But it is part of why God puts us together. Because even the things that happen that shouldn't happen have a purpose in changing who I am. When somebody treats me in a fashion that I consider to be wrong, I'd love to tell you that my first response is to hug them. But I don't think that's a hug. It's more like a strangle. But if I want to please him, I have to say, Lord, love one another as you loved us. And make my love for that brother or sister not be based upon what they've done, but based upon the God that we are both endeavoring to serve together and grow one with another. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Oh, nearly finished.
Romans 8 and 35. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that passage of Scripture preaches really well. It's one of those things that when you're preaching, you can get all excited about and start slapping the pulpit and say, I am persuaded. But the fact is people still walk. We can read all that and say, none of this stuff can separate me from the love of Christ. But yet it still happens. Ephesians 3 and 19 says, And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. In other words, it's not something you're going to achieve through your own intellect. That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. So if nothing can separate me from the love of Christ and yet many people walk away from him because of something that happens in his family. There's a lot of people leave churches for, forgive me if I seem hard, but reasons that are a lot softer than we read in Romans 8. Peril and famine and sword. You know, they're things that a lot of us have never experienced. I know there's a lot of different cultures there, and some of you come from places where there is real hardship, but in Australia, real hardship, forgive me, doesn't really exist. Not when you read, you know, we are killed all the day long, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. And yet, something happens that people leave and then justify their leaving. So, if in Ephesians 3 and 19 it says, to know the love of Christ, let's ask the question, what is the love of Christ? Can you know the love of Christ in a vacuum? Or in other words, that's not the thing you clean the floor with, but in, in an isolated environment. Can we really know and experience and demonstrate the love of Christ all by ourselves? I would suggest no. Because the love of Christ is, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love than this hath no man, that he lay down his life for his friends. We already read from Romans 5, but verse 7 also says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if I'm in the love of Christ, you see, we read that and we think, God loves me, therefore I can't be separated. There's more to it than that. If I'm in the love of Christ, that means that I'm doing everything I can to love people the way that he loves me, which means that regardless of response, regardless of performance or lack of performance, my love is based upon the fact that I want to please him. I want to walk in the light. It's not based upon whether or not Moses offends me, whether or not Jonathan crashes my car. It's not based upon that stuff. It's based upon he loved me. When I did not even know him, and he shone his light on me when I was in pitch black darkness, called me out of that, gave me everything I did not deserve. 
That's the love of Christ. So if you are in that love, then nothing will separate you. That's why John said, if you walk in the light, there's no occasion of stumbling because you can see. When darkness comes, you fall over things. You stumble about. You don't see the things you should see. But when there's light shining with clarity, there's none occasion of stumbling in us. This is what it means to be a part of this family. It's not just the, the warm, fuzzy part. It's not just the, you know, we love one another, we have great services. You know, when the Holy Ghost moves and the power of God sweeps through this place and we all pray through and we have fellowship, it's sweet and it's precious and it should be. And I love that. I love I've, my furthest back memories are of being a part of the family of God. Can I say everything was perfect? No, I can't. Would I trade it for anything? Not in a million years. There is no group of people anywhere in the world that compares to brothers and sisters of like precious faith. But those same people will hurt you. They'll let you down. They'll do things they shouldn't do. Why? Because they're still trying to walk in the light. And we're still trying to walk in the light. And I have no authority whatsoever to control my love for my brothers and sisters based on their performance unless I want God to minister to me in the same fashion. If I want to keep going back to him and saying, Lord, I've fallen short of the mark again, but your love is still there for me, I better be willing to pass it on. Amen. You need to be a part of the family of God. The question is, what are we willing to take, to put up with, to love our brother? Grace teaches us we need to be a part of the family. We need to be a part of the family. Will offenses happen? Yes. Will things go wrong? Absolutely. Will people fail that shouldn't fail? Yes. Will we be disappointed in the conduct of others? Yes. But is he disappointed in you and I sometimes? Do we fail him? Do we let him down? Are we still a work in progress in his hands? Does he still love us? We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. You see, really, when, it, when the rubber meets the road with the Scripture, all the things that are required of us are not conditional upon environment. They're conditional upon relationship. My actions are the ones I'm responsible for, not somebody else's. If Moses hurts me, I can't control that. I, I don't have a control over his actions. I have a control over mine. And so as Christians... We should be the initiator. We should be the one that says, well, I'm not sure about that person. Love them. doesn't mean run around and hug everybody. You know, it's good that, that we greet one another in church and I, the ladies hug the ladies, the men hug the men. I don't like it getting mixed up because that can cause some trouble. Some people don't like being hugged. Look, I mean, the thing is, there's got to be the love of God in the family of God. But rather than go, well, I'm not sure, put your love out. Shine your light. Let somebody see the light, regardless of how they perform. You never know the difference you might make. What did his love make a difference in your life? He extended it to us. You know, He's extended it to so many people that have just ignored it and turned away. But he keeps extending. That's the love of Christ. That's what it means to be a part of this family. Amen.
you know, we, these things aren't in my notes, but these are just some thoughts to go with them. A lot of things happen in situations because of misunderstandings and misperceptions. And they are exaggerated when we withdraw. Don't be somebody that withdraws. Put your love on demonstration. Shine your light. Help to overcome things. Be the first person to act the way that God wants you to act. And you'll be amazed at the things that we can overcome. It's amazing to me in the years I've been in the church, not this church particularly, but the church as a whole, people who withdraw themselves are the ones who say that nobody else talks to them. Years ago in Townsville, I'll close with this, Brother Gavin may remember this. Actually, I think my wife remembers. She was there at that time. We had a business meeting, had an AGM. And there was a couple, an older couple in the church that had actually moved to North Queensland from WA. Brother Paul might know. But uh, they used to come to service after the opening prayer. Come in after we'd started church and sit at the back and the door was at the back. And as soon as we said, Lord, keep your hand on us this week. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. They're out the door like bullet out of a gun. You, you could not greet them if you wanted to. They'd parked their car as close to the door as possible, flew out the door and went home. That's their thing, fair enough. But then at the business meeting, they stood up and they said, we don't feel like there's enough love in this church. And people aren't friendly and it's like... But it's amazing how our perception can twist reality. And we laugh about that because it's a funny story. But they were genuine. They believed what they were saying. Because somewhere along the way, something had warped their understanding and their perspective. We've got to... There's a reason that Scripture talks about keeping ourselves in the love of God. I mean, I could go on. Let's stand this morning.